2: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In July, Effa Walker School in Simsbury, Connecticut welcomed a new head of school, Dr. Mira Viswanathan. She took the job after many years at Brown University as Associate Professor of Comparative Literature and East Asian Studies. We visited her recently on the campus of the Boarding and Day School to find out more about her career and why she decided to lead a private school for girls. Our visit started by observing Dr. Viswanathan, her students call her Miss Viz, co-teaching a literature class. She asked her students to reflect on the idea of refugee and compare it to the role of the monster in Frankenstein.
0: In the case of Frankenstein, there's the whole question of wildness, isn't there? And we sometimes use the word feral. What does feral mean? Feral cat. What's a feral cat? cat? Wild. 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 Savage. Savage, right? Not Not humanized. Not humanized, exactly, not domesticated. My name is Mira Vishwanathan, and I was born in what had been Madras, now it's Chennai in South India. I came to this country at the age of five and spoke no English, and proceeded to watch television for about 10 or 12 hours a day. And after a few months, I found I spoke English. And so it was a a heady experience. And I mentioned to the girls that when I was interviewing here and had breakfast, that somebody handed me a box of cornflakes that I opened and suddenly to smell Kellogg's cornflakes reminded me of the first morning we landed in 1961 in Los Angeles. And, and so that's when I told the girls I knew this was home for me because the smell of cornflakes awaited.
2: And So you're the child of immigrants. What brought them to
0: California? My father had been a, a PhD student at UCLA studying solid-state physics and then his department asked him to stay on as a professor of electrical engineering and so my mother's sister and I emigrated at that point and of course I hadn't seen him since I was a baby um, so it was a kind of meeting for the first time and regrettably my parents marriage fell apart but my mother realized for a number of reasons that it was important for us to stay in this country and so she really became the role model of what a strong woman can do and fierce about education and women's self-sufficiency. And so I think those are watch words for me today.
2: You mentioned um, you learned English by watching a lot of TV. And that's a story that we hear from many people who come from abroad and and have to learn English. So
0: you were uh, were someone who went to public school? I was. And in fact, um, from elementary throughout secondary, I went to Los Angeles public schools. And I would like to point out, and this is a, a somewhat politicized opinion, but it was in the days of pre-proposition 13, pre-1978, when California public schools were among the best in the nation, and nowadays they're typically ranked at the bottom, around the 48th. And and so this is one of the great tragedies to me. Um, the the hallmarks to me of of American um, ideals are embodied in the institution of public schools of public libraries, which is where a great deal of my education happened, and then finally this idea of need-based financial aid, which I think are all peculiarly American institutions.
2: Let's talk more about um, public education because it's you know, hotly debated in this country, especially now um, when we, we hear people are worried, some people support, but many are worried about having an education, a, a, yeah, yes. a, a education secretary who comes from the corporate world, who's never had any kind of experience with public education. You know, what is the role of private education in this conversation?
0: Among biologists now, there is an emphasis on diversity. And so, for example, we are taught now, when we think about public parks, to eschew monocultures of trees. We want that diversity of vegetation. I think the same holds true for education, which is you want to be in a richly dense, educational, ecological situation, an educational milieu. You want the basis of public schools to be the framework. You want independent schools, you want parochial schools, you want single gender schools, you want co-ed schools. And the reality is no one school is optimal for every child. So the greater the density, and that's one of the pleasures of this area where we have so many different kinds of institutions, I think they promote one another's health. But I think public education in its ideal formulation is that place where any child can become well-educated, and I'm so proud. I mean, I went off to Stanford straight out of public education and public libraries, and, and those were the two sources of my learning, and one could excel, and that's the ideal I think we should imagine. Now, one question, what, what am I doing then in an independent school? Again, I think independent schools bring opportunities, so not just opportunities for students, but opportunities to try out methods, to try out pedagogies, and the real reason I came to, to Ethel Walker is not so much that I wanted to be head of school, I mean, I, I think that's a wonderful privilege, but I came because I, I had ideas about girls' education and the transformation, and here was a school that was happy to receive me and try out some of these ideas. So that's why I'm here. I think in, in a public situation, it's more difficult to institute that kind of change. So in some ways, independent schools can serve as pilot programs. When we look at
2: private schools, though, people will point
0: to this as this is an
2: opportunity for only the elite. Mm-hmm. How does the Ethel Walker School um, open up that opportunity
0: to more than just children of, of wealthy parents? Well, we have 51% of our students on need-based financial aid. And so I think we, we see here uh, a diverse population of students with respect to social class, race, um, creed, and uh, in addition uh, economic means. So I don't know that I could teach at a school which did not take financial aid seriously. Um, and this school is committed to it. We spend a higher percentage of our tuition revenue on financial aid than any other school. and. The key for me is how to make that sustainable, right? And I need to go forward thinking about that. But um, I think that independent schools recognize the importance of that kind of social diversity and why it's not just attractive, but fundamental to excellent learning.
2: So tell us a little bit more about your background. So we know that you're a child of immigrants. You came here when you were five, educated in public schools, went into academia. But tell me, from the time that you went to college, you know, what was your focus and how you ended up
0: in this spot right now? Well, as I mentioned, my my parents were divorced. My mother was a single mother who was a, a secretary, and she supported us in a very small apartment in West Los Angeles. Um, and I didn't realize that, that we actually were uh, below the poverty line uh, because uh, we didn't have a car, we didn't go on vacations, but we had, a, I thought, a full life and that's thanks to my mother. So when I went off to Stanford on complete financial aid, it was a little bit of a shock for me to understand that people had very different means at their disposal and that some people could go to Paris for the weekend and, and I had a term time job and a summer job and wondered if I could afford pizza. And that experience now for me is so important, partly in that notion of self-sustaining uh, uh, grit, but also for me to understand as a head of school the needs of our students. And I think some of our students, I made a point at my investiture of talking about this particular uh, experience of growing up and with some hardship. And many students came to me and said, we never imagined that you experienced what we experienced. So for me, to be ahead head of school, all of these experiences, good and bad, indifferent, have been significant in shaping me in being attuned and attentive to the needs of our girls now. You know,
2: what is your message to your students? Again, it's an all-girls uh, private boarding and day school. And we know in this country that there's still debate about you know equal pay for equal work. Um, at your investiture, the person who gave the keynote, she's responsible for opening the first boarding school for uh, girls in Afghanistan. There's so many places in this country where, or, I'm sorry, in this world rather, where girls do not have equal access to education. So knowing all of that, all of these things that are around us, you know, what is your message to the students here about what they should be focused on when they leave this campus?
0: And I begin with this notion of boldness. I think our girls need to dare to be bold. Sometimes girls, we are, we are socialized not to be transgressive. And that's a nice thing. But in that act of transgression is often a willingness to take initiative. And that's important for me, for our girls to take that initiative and, and to be able to be willing to fail. So for me, it's the awareness, and what I would say to them, is of capacity. And there's a wonderful uh, Nobel laureate, Amartya Sen, an economist, who argues for something called the capabilities approach, which I'm instituting here. And the idea is that equality is not a function of a chicken in every pot. Not everybody has, wants to eat chicken, and not everybody has a pot. But rather, whether or not you can function in all of the doings of your life, to the best of your potential according to your system of values. And so that's what I want our girls to do, which is to imagine how can they function most fully. And this is not a a merely uh, question of getting grades. It's by the doings. It's by the possibilities. And as of next year, we're beginning a coding program, which is not just an hour a week of coding, but it's the idea that all of our girls, whether or not they choose to go on in CS or not, are still going to be functional coders that they can write code, that they have this lucrative skill. I want every one of our girls to be able to give a three-minute impromptu public address on any subject with no ums, you knows, and likes. Similarly, I want every girl to have financial competency to to learn the basics about personal finance, taxes, investment. Again, they can choose to reject capitalism as a whole, but they need to do that after they understand the possibilities. So I think the two things that are most important to me for girls are possibility and relationship. And I think that this is, relationship often gets assumed to be something cozy and, and, and gingerbready. I think relationships are, we talked about identity in class this morning, I think relationships are, are what define us, are what give us identity. and. My field, you might know before at Brown, before I came to Walker's, was comparative literature. And especially I worked in Japanese literature, aesthetics, and philosophy, as well as literature uh, in and of itself. And one of the philosophers whom I studied, Watsuji Tetsuro, argues that the the two characters used to express human being in Japanese are human and space. And he argues it's the spaces between us that give rise to everything about humanity, which he calls ethics, Kaku. And so again, it's about those spaces and possibilities, and that's why relationship is so important.
2: You mentioned when you were at Brown for 33 years, you would interact with your students, and you could tell which ones came from an all-girls uh, high school. Tell us about that again, and, and, sure. and how they were
0: different. Right. Well, as I said, initially, I would notice these young women in my classes, and, and all of my students at Brown, I'm happy to say, were wonderfully engaging, intelligent, articulate. But these young women had a difference about them, and I would describe it as one of, I think I used the expression, they were comfortable in their skin. And I think for women particularly, this is a, a usually something you're lucky if you get it when you're in your 30s or 40s. But these young women at the age of 18, 19 seemed completely relaxed, did not hesitate to extend their comments in class, did not engage in apologetics, did not feel the need to qualify what they said in any way. And I I thought, what is it that has produced this? And later in office hours, I'd find out that the vast majority had gone to a single sex, an all-girls secondary school. And after about a decade, it got to the point where I could pick them out, and later I would confirm it during office hours, that there was something that distinguished these girls, and who are now young women, and I thought to myself, what would my life have been like had I, at this young age, possessed this extraordinary comfort with who I was and the ability, therefore, to focus on ideas without this sort of anxiety about self and presentation. And I think that was what instigated my interest in Ethel Walker's initially, though quite honestly, when the idea was put forward to me, I I seriously thought I would never leave Brown. This is, you know, the place I've been incredibly happy and fulfilled. But then I saw the possibilities here. And as I say, I've talked about functionings and doings of girls. I saw for myself a possibility of functioning in a new way and thinking about how we transform girls' education even more.
2: And what would you say to our listeners, you know, maybe parents, you know, community members, who want to be able to help children feel comfortable in their own skin, so that they can, you know, succeed in whatever you know their aims are, without, you know, maybe not everyone can be in a certain environment where they have that opportunity.
0: I think if we're dealing particularly with girls as as a subset, I would say it's that notion of possibility, and what girls often do is and I think it's a function of socialization, that we pursue those areas where we're sure we're we're going to excel, where we're going to hit that 90 percent level. And then we have blinders on those other areas, whereas males, by contrast, more often feel themselves to be sort of uh, uh, broadly educated and able to do many things. And I think what I would urge parents to think about with respect to girls is making sure those possibilities exist. both those possibilities that are traditionally precluded from girls choices but also those choices that are traditionally seen as female that all of those without value are presented for girls to partake of and I think that's what's key and, and that's why here I'm delighted that our girls are avid uh, sort of contestants in our robotics team I'm also thrilled that they're writers that they are writers that they are poets that they are interested in dance that all of these are in the purview of girls.
2: That's Dr. Mira Viswanathan, the new head of school at Ethel Walker in Simsbury. We spoke to her recently on campus at the all-girls school. We'll talk more about her background after the break, including the time she spent in Jordan, working with her husband to open a co-ed boarding school there. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy nall Today we're bringing you a recent conversation we had with Dr. Mira Viswanathan, head of school at Ethel Walker in Simsbury, Connecticut. The former professor at Brown has a diverse background in education, including time spent abroad in Jordan. I asked Mira about her efforts a decade ago in developing a co-ed boarding school in Jordan, alongside her husband, Dr. Eric Widmer, who spent 12
0: years as headmaster at Deerfield Academy in Massachusetts. The King of Jordan, who was a graduate of Deerfield Academy, where my husband had been headmaster, um, at uh, a commencement where he was the invited speaker, paused at breakfast over a forkful of eggs and said, you know, I'd like to build a school just like this in Jordan. How would you like to consult? And of course, we agreed. And then when my husband decided to step down as head of Deerfield, the king said to him, you know, why don't you come and be the..." Founding head of the school and said to me, "You can write the curriculum." And 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 you know, for me that was bon bon time. Uh, so uh, we came to Jordan, and um, it was a fascinating experience to construct a non-colonialist Jordanian school that was English medium, that offered the American curriculum, and the number of different things to balance in that was was quite a challenge but exciting, and the school is thriving today, is over 600, and we've seen a number of graduates from our years who've now graduated from college, who are in medical school, in law school, business school, in the professions, back in Jordan, uh, working to build that country. And and so for me, this this is the magic of education. It works. Things happen, and there is no greater instigator of positive social change than education. How long did you live in Jordan? Um, I lived there two years, which was the maximum Brown would give me. But in truth, the year before and the year after, I think I made 10 trips each year. So um, I would say it's closer to four, though interstitially for those other two years.
2: It's interesting, considering um, we look at the refugee and migrant crisis. I mean, Jordan has bared the, the borne the brunt of, of that crisis. I'm just curious your perspective on that.
0: People have no idea what refugees mean until you examine Jordan, where there are more refugees than Jordanians in the country. And of course, we have waves of refugees going back to 1949, when Palestinians came from the 1967 uh, war with Israel. We have the uh, uh, Afghani refugees, we have Iraqi refugees, and now we have Syrian refugees. And the number of camps, and Jordan does a tremendous job. I don't know if people understand how much Jordan does in terms of not just shouldering that burden, but also providing that buffer state where it is a place of sanctuary for refugees. And the king is extraordinarily committed both to supporting his people but also being that welcoming place. And I would argue that his own American education plays a role in that as well. But it's a remarkable country. I feel very grateful for my time there. And also, it was very humbling, I have to tell you, that I all the things I thought I knew about education were taken apart, and so I began again. We talked just a little bit about the challenges before the public education
2: system. But what about with, with private schools? I mean, we sure. know with the recession, you know, there are less people that were able to send their children to a place like Ethel Walker School. We hear more and more uh, Chinese students are coming to this country because they have the means to study at places like Ethel Walker School. I mean, what are the challenges that your,
0: your institution faces? That's exactly right, and I think finances are are a big one. I think the question is, how do we make this education possible for a wide constituency? And that is, we don't simply want children who are completely on need and students who are completely capable of paying the full freight here. And by the way, I want to point out that no student, even those who pay the full tuition, are paying for the cost of the education that the education is about 25 to 30 percent more than tuition covers. And this is why, for example, endowments are necessary, this is why annual funds are necessary, that everyone is subsidized at an, ind- at, at an independent school. So the question for us, how to make sure we have a spectrum, and that also there are no default assumptions, that not all students of color are on financial aid, that not all students of European extraction are not on financial aid. So we need to cut across those default assumptions and trying to assemble a school which reflects this is a challenge, I think. The issue of international applicants, we have wonderful applicants from China and Korea and a number of other places, but I think diversity is also the key here that we need to recruit more broadly because our international population should be as diverse, ideally, as our domestic population. And, and so how we achieve this, so one of the things I hope to do in coming years is recruit in places like the Middle East, in South Asia, in Latin America, and I think that will produce a much richer group for all students to benefit from.
2: What do you want people to know about this campus, this community, mm-hmm. for those who may just be driving by? Mm-hmm. There are a lot of private schools in Connecticut. How does this place stand apart?
0: Yeah, And, and that It harkens back to my comment about why did I come here? and Many people have asked me that, why did you pick Ethel Walker's? And what I laugh and say is there was never any other place. It was this or I would stay at Brown. And the reason why Ethel Walker's appeals to me is it's that rare combination of receptivity, relationship, but also, and here's the most important thing, intellectual aspiration and that the heart and the mind are not separate. And so that I have very high ambitions for our girls and that ambition is not measured purely by college admissions. I mean, that's one measure. But it's really about girls' possibilities. And if there are things that we see that are different about 20th century learning, that it is more collaborative, that it's less hierarchical, and finally, that it's focused around students not merely passively ingesting but actually doing. And so I would say to those parents who are driving by, this is that place where your daughter can become the fullest kind of woman and human being, intellectually, personally, and socially.
2: And how do do your students get involved in the community outside
0: of this campus? That's a really good question. One of the things we've done, we used to have a community service program, and we've transitioned now to something we call community partnerships. And again, partnerships suggest not the bestowing of largesse from one group to another, but rather by a shared enterprise in which both sides benefit. And that's what community partnership is. So for example, we have partnered with United Way and the uh, program that the IRS, IRS runs called VITA, the Volunteer Income Tax Assistance Program. And recently about a dozen of our students have taken the VITA exam and passed and another uh, dozen or so have uh, taken the training to be gr- greeters and translators. And we work with low and moderate income families to uh, uh, submit their taxes and claim their earned income tax credit. And many of these families um, have uh, annual incomes of $20,000 or, or, or less. And uh, and so the idea that three or four or $5,000 could be possible for them is, is a huge windfall. And so here's a way in which our girls learn what it is to become financial professionals in a small way, but also learn how other people manage their lives and learn what difficult choices confront them. And so I think from the experience, um, both sides really are have partnered to, to learn and benefit. And so this is what I hope we do with all of our service programs. And um, I, I have a wonderful faculty and staff who are fully committed to this.
2: And lastly, Ethel Walker is getting ready to celebrate its centennial. Can you tell us about that?
0: Sure. We have celebrated one centennial. The original founding of the school was in 1911, which was a seminal date around the world for, for women's rights. And, uh, and, and so I think it's not accidental that Ethel Walker should have picked that time to found the school. And she founded the school as a new graduate of Bryn Mawr because she was determined that there be a place where girls would have a rigorous academic uh, education which would train them for college and professions and, and I like to think you know, we, we were in the vanguard and we're still working there. The, the uh, second centennial we're about to celebrate in 1917 the school moved from its uh, original uh, uh, campus in New Jersey to uh, Connecticut And that happens in the fall. And so we're getting ready to celebrate 100 years on this campus. And I think these these commemoratives are important times because they allow us a chance both to look backward and review our history and then, of course, serve as mirrors to remind us where we are now and how we got here.
2: Mira, thank you so much for speaking with us. It was
0: my very great pleasure. Thank
2: you for taking the time to visit us. That was Dr. Mira Viswanathan, the new head of school at Ethel Walker in Simsbury, Connecticut. Coming up, we revisit our conversation with 2016 Yale Greenberg World Fellow Hrund Gunstendotir. She produced a documentary about how to be more creative in our lives. It's called Insaie, The Sea Within, and we'll hear more about it after the break. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy nall What's the secret to creativity in today's world where many of us are focused on advancing our careers? We live in a time where it's become harder to disconnect from work thanks to that smartphone nearby. How can we step away from the hustle of life to be more in tune with ourselves and more creative in our endeavors? Icelandic consultant Hrund Gunstein had this very question. Frustrated with bureaucracy, she quit her job as a United Nations official in Geneva and decided to figure out for herself how human beings can be more intuitive and reach their creative potential. Her exploration is documented in her new documentary, In The Sea Within. It premiered in New York City in September and is now streaming on Netflix. Hrund was a 2016 Yale-Greenberg World Fellow. We spoke to her late last year. Hrund, welcome to where we
1: live. Thank you very much. So what are your uh, impressions of the United States? I'm loving it here. I'm totally loving it here. Uh, Yale is treating me really well, you know, surrounded by amazing people. And the weather is nice, relatively stable. (laughs) So that's nice compared to my my country.
2: Um, So you were a former
1: United Nations employee. So what did you do for the U.N.? So I uh, first, I was a program manager of of UNIFEM, which is now called UN Women. And it's the agency with the UN that uh, deals with women's rights and gender equality. And I was sent to Kosovo after the war in 2001, and I headed their uh, agency there. So dealing with reconstruction, defining democracy, building women's leadership role, creating a legal framework in order to do that, you know, in in order to promote gender equality. And while I was there, uh, I was offered a permanent position with the UN, which means that I took a so-called competitive examination, which is offered to people uh, in different countries of the world at each time. And about 3% of people who take that exam for two days are offered the permanent position. So that's a very rare opportunity. I moved to Geneva in 2002, And I stayed there for about two years. And in 2004, I decided to resign from a a lifelong permanent position with the UN. It was a big decision.
2: So take us back. So when you first um, were offered the permanent position, was this like a dream job for you to work for the UN?
1: It was a dream job. So I graduated with a master's degree in 2000. And so it came really quickly after that. I worked in London for a human rights organization, and then I was offered this position in Kosovo shortly after that. I had two uh, goals when I graduated. I want to either work for the Red Cross or the UN, and I wanted to work in a post-conflict context. So I I felt really... I mean, things happened really, really fast for me. Uh, Getting a position like that in Kosovo is, I think, relatively rare. So I was only 27 when I... Had it uh, the program there. And uh, yeah, it was totally a dream job. But you said you resigned by 2004. What was, th- what was it about the job that frustrated you? So in Kosovo, I was, I was working very closely with the people that the UN was serving, you know. Um, and when I moved to Geneva, I was on track to become, it, it's similar to when you work for the foreign, foreign Service or something, so on track to becoming a diplomat almost. And what I encountered there was this oversized bureaucracy and hierarchy. And I felt, to put it short, I felt like I was being put into a freezer. So there's, there's lots of things that happen in a work environment that's based around these things. And in, I just really felt that, um, because I'd always had issues with what it was all for, and I just felt that we were serving a system instead of the system serving people on the planet. And my ideals for working for the UN haven't changed, but I just felt like this really wasn't the way to do it.
2: Resigning from a a job that at one time seemed like a dream, that's not an easy thing to do. How did you get to that point where you felt comfortable, well, it was time for me to let this job go and maybe explore something
1: new? So I, you know, even if I was thinking about these things while I was working in Geneva, I didn't act on it because I was in a in a in a in a wonderful comfort zone in a sense, you know. My my paychecks arrived every month. I was living a good life. But the thought kept coming to me that, you know, I wanted to do something more creative, you know. I was feeling restrained. And I ended up hitting a wall, as I call it. I guess it's called the burnout today. I didn't even know that term then. And it really forced me to reconsider where I was heading in life, what I was doing, how I was doing it. And at one point when I was just totally, you know, I had no energy, I was exhausted. I went down to the beach in the small town that I live in in Iceland. I was there for a visit. And I had this vision of myself uh, being 60 plus. And I really wasn't doing the job that I was doing in Geneva. I had traveled the world. I had met people. I had been inspired and moved by people. I was doing creative things. I was writing and doing storytelling, getting people's stories across, and I don't know, just being touched by people and touching people's lives. And I just realized that uh, my work in Geneva wasn't going to sort of bring that dream to fruition. So you wanted to learn how to be
2: more creative, to find a new, um, I guess, a a career path where you
1: felt more fulfilled. How did you go about doing that? Where did you start? (laughs) So having taken that decision, it was not an easy one. So people around me would say, like, what are you thinking? Like, why do you do that? You have no idea where you're going. So in short, I was really going into the unknown and I was I was petrified. You know, I wasn't sure if I could. How was I going to work more creatively? But slowly but surely, I just knew that I had to delve more into where my shortcomings were. And I, during this time, it was a hard time in my life. But during this time, because I'm a, I'm a big nerd, you know, I read a lot and I'm very curious and I collect a lot of information. And I realized that I consist of two rhythms. So one is the analytical and the logical one. And the other one is the creative and intuitive one. And I had totally neglected the intuitive and the creative one. So I decided to think of ways to combine the two rhythms and do a documentary film. I was going to do a PhD, but there was no PhD program that I found that that would enroll me without putting me into one discipline. And I didn't want to go into one discipline because the purpose of my work is really to say that we need to unbox the way we think. We need to think more in a flow. We need to make associations between different parts in order to make sense out of the big context that we live in. So a documentary was done and it's taken six years to do.
2: This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. I'm speaking with Hrun Gunsten Dottir, an Icelandic consultant, filmmaker, entrepreneur, and writer. She's also co director and author of this documentary she just mentioned, Insaye, The Sea Within. So tell me about six year journey to create a documentary that looks at creativity and intuition. Where do
1: you begin? Good question. So uh, a friend of mine, Kristin Olofsdottir, who is the co-director of the film and the producer, so she has been a filmmaker for many, many years. And we had this kind of similar interest in intuition. And so we decided to partner up and, and do something about it. And we, you know, we, I had done a lot of research about it. Uh, we wrote down names of people that we wanted to ask almost naive questions, you know, about intuition. What is it, you know? Are we connected to intuition, the world inside us? And what is this world inside us? So we mapped down names of people who could help us, people that are in science, business professors, artists, spiritual leaders, neuroscientists, different people. We traveled the world, we spoke to them. And then we also followed a school program for kids in the UK. Kids that are finding it difficult to focus in school, they're finding it difficult to establish relationship with friends. They don't feel as well as we would hope them to feel. And so we followed them. And in short, what was interesting was that we are now increasingly teaching kids to connect within in order to be able to cope and hopefully flourish. And just that fact tells me a lot about the world we live in and the state of the world that we actually need to teach ourselves and our kids to do that
2: when I think of intuition, I'm thinking of um, that feeling that you get. It's like a gut feeling or a sense that this is something that should be happening. Um, what
1: did What did you learn about intuition? So, uh, you know, I had done a lot of work like research about before I had trying to tune in with my own intuition and, and work with it. But what surprised me in the making of the film was that how far and how advanced we are actually in mapping out what intuition is. I mean, There's so much we don't know about it. There's so much about the brain that we don't know. But after we we became able to uh, scan the brain and more and monitor more how it functions in reality, then we've begun to know more. So, I mean, I had ideas about, you know, we definitely need to use all our senses. We need to embody experience. We need to immerse ourselves in experience in order to build up a strong intuition. And the journey around the film really showed me hands on how people are actually doing that. So one of the uh, people that we talked to in the film is Enric Sala, who is an ocean explorer in residence with the National Geographic. And he's very passionate about the ocean. He had a professor position, uh, which he resigned from uh, when he was probably around 30 or 35. And the reason why he resigned was that he felt really disconnected from the ocean that he was researching. So after that, he spent most of his time uh, diving and just living in the ocean in order to build a strong intuition about it. And his record as an ocean explorer, somebody who wants to protect uh, pristine parts of the ocean, is just incredible. So that was really one of the things that really inspired me to pursue this. What do you say to people um, who are
2: listening to this? and are thinking, well, it's it's hard for me to just immerse myself in something that I love or something that's my passion because you know I have the nine to five job, I have the kids at home I have to take care of, I've got the bills to pay. Um, we feel like we're we are we have so many responsibilities and requirements that we can't just uh, just take off and, and try to have this time to to feel better connected to the world around
1: us. I would say you don't have to take off, just be present. In all those things. So, the most simple advice that I give to people is to pay attention to what it is you pay attention to. So, we pay attention to a lot of things, you know. I mean, we're constantly being bombarded with information and destruction all the time. But the question is do you pay attention to how you pay attention? So, when you start focusing on that, that's when you start to become aligned in everything you do. And everything you do has something to teach you about the world you live in and yourself and how you cope. So being mindful in that way is really the way to tap into your intuition and to make the most of what you can do about, you know, make the most of your skills and talent and gifts to the, to yourself and the world around you. Because intuition is, you know, on my way here, I had this wonderful conversation with a former fighter pilot and I said to him, uh, so he's in his 60s, probably. And I said to him, so what is good intuition to you? And he said, you know, when you, you take a decision based on your intuition, take your time to take your decision. That's important. So intuition is not an impulse. It's not like a decision you take in a second based on fear, perhaps. And that's not always the best desi- a decision. But he said, take your time to take your decision and have confidence In your intuition and i think that's the thing that we need to focus on because the world we live in is like an ocean so first thing is to keep your head up otherwise you drown (laughs) yeah so that applies to kids and adults alike but you need to have confidence in in taking a decision that you believe is going to take you to the right place and confidence is not something that we're being taught right i mean i wasn't taught that at school so it's like you need to know yourself well enough to be able to put yourself in other people's shoes in order to be cognizant about the context around you, in order to take the most sensible decisions that you want. But you also need courage, because sometimes intuition is about an idea you have that you've never seen in action before. And people may tell you that this is not something you should pursue, it's a silly idea, somebody has probably done it before, and we have these voices in our heads that will stop us, you know, the editor. But we need to be confident enough to say, no, you know what, I think this is the right way to do it. I think I want to pursue this path. And that's something, that's another thing that has to do with confidence. You know, in order to be confident, you need to know yourself.
2: We're talking about your documentary. Tell us about the meaning. I, 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 hopefully I'm not butchering the title in Saïd. <laughs> but uh, what is
1: the meaning surrounding that, that particular name? So insayi is the Icelandic word for intuition. And I love that word. It's very poetic. Insayi means the sea within. So it implies movement, flow. It's the world of vision, imagination, and creativity. But insayi is also about seeing within and to see from the inside out. And this was a many-year journey for you to see from the inside out? Yeah, it was. And I think that... There is a lot in, our, in the way that we, we, we do things in our society and education and the stimuli around us that encourages us more to act from the outside in, to react to everything around us. But in order to shift the center of gravity in the way we act and think and do, it's important to put the balance between external and intri- intrinsic you know, motivations that we have.
2: Earlier, you mentioned uh, a kids program in the UK. Um, what did you learn about that program? And what did you learn about the children? Because you know, when we're kids, it, creativity almost comes naturally. And then as we get older and we've got certain expectations, it's like we push away that cre- creativity, that, that uh, impulse the, to be creative.
1: Yeah. So that program is amazing. It's called Mind Up. It actually originates in, in, in the States uh what they do is that they combine ancient uh, knowledge with new scientific discovery so they will k- teach them mindfulness they will teach them how to meditate but they actually call it brain breaks which i find very fascinating and i think it's just to this is my theory i think it's just to um enable recognition from people because we tend to be a little bit suspicious of more spiritual things like meditation although i think this is changing Another thing that I found fascinating about MindTap was that they are taught how the brain functions. So in the film, you will see them, you know, beautiful explanations. We allow the kids in the film to explain to us how the brain works. They know much better than we do. And they say like, you know, when I go for a break and I get really angry and I wanna, you know, beat someone or say something horrible or scream or something, then I understand that my amygdala, you know, is really taking over. So I need to, you know, be conscious of my amygdala and take a deep (laughs) breath and then I do something else. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. I wish I would have known that. If I would have known that when I was working for the UN in a very hard situation in post-conflict Kosovo, I would have been able to find a better balance between, you know, my inner world and the world around me. But I didn't know how to. So I just kind of leaked out in that situation instead of knowing how to re-energize myself center myself and be more aligned. Your documentary has premiered um, in several places. I mean, when people um, see the film, what do you hope they get out of it? I hope that when people see the film, they feel inspired to trust their intuition more, explore it, listen to their inner voice, because our inner voice doesn't scream at us. You know, it'll never grab us by the neck and tell, tell us to sit down. It's just quiet. It's quiet. So what we need to do is to quiet our minds, and we need to tap into it and understand what it's telling us. And when we do that, we become connected. It doesn't really matter what you're doing. Just being connected is all that matters, because then you will last for longer. You know, you'll be happier. You can contribute more. You'll be more creative. So our hope is really that people connect to that beautiful source of wisdom that we all have inside us part of what we need to do today, and part of the reason why I'm focusing on intuition and creativity, is that we really need to rethink how we think. We need to avoid using old tools to address new challenges, because we'll just be keeping doing the same mistakes all over again. And one of the things that uh, are kind of fresh in my mind is, for example, in, in Syria, there's war going on there. And the many countries that are trying to resolve that war They rely on international definitions, legal definitions of war. But these definitions don't even match the realities on the ground. So the old definition of war is two states are waiting war, but the wars that are being waged today are often proxy wars, which means that they are between different countries and groups, armed groups that don't even, um, they don't even take place in, in the state that actually is the main perpetrator in the war. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, We really need to define again what war is in order to address it uh, as it should be addressed. So that's one of the many things. And I also think that with regards to education, what are we educating our kids and ourselves for? Like, really, what what is education about? My daughter is 13 and she will tell me, Mom, I don't understand why I need to learn this and this and that. Why can't they just teach me how to be alone in a mountain? Why can't they just teach me how I deal with friends? Why can't they just teach me what hobbies I should choose to know myself? So I think that's something that we really need to think about, because at the end of the day, when you have so much turmoil around you, this applies to individual lives and the world that we live in. The strongest thing that we can build is a strong inner compass. It's based on values, our own sort of humanity, our own creative spirit, our own sense of belonging. And when we don't feel sense of belonging, for example, you know, that increases our tendency to be depressed, anxious, stressed. Depression is becoming the leading cause of disability and illness in the Western world and in the world in general. That must tell us something. So I think that reconnecting to the most inner core of what it means to be human and taking it from there is like, one of the most urgent things that we can do in the world today.
2: Can I ask you, when your daughter asks you that question, what do you tell her?
1: Oh, my God, that's a really <laughs> tough question because I remember thinking that myself when I was in school, and partly it's being rebellious against having to learn new things. But what I try to tell her is that, you know, maybe you can have a conversation with your teachers about it, and maybe you can think together how you can change the classroom, you know, in that sense. Mm-hmm. But I also tell her, like, I also know that I'm a parent and I work a lot. So the most precious thing that I can give her is experience and experiencing the world with me. So it's time. And that's another thing that we are all being confined. Time with our kids. And just to touch the world, you know, take things step by step, not deciding how it's going to end. Just really test it. Be courageous about how things evolve that we do throughout the day. Mm. That's all I can do. I'm learning, you know. But it's, it's, it's a balance. But I try to I mean, when I think about my kids, I have two daughters. One is nine and the other one is 13. I think about if I have something to give them as a mother, it's it's independence, self-confidence, generosity, and love for life. And so I just try to use it as a compass throughout my parenting. That's Hrund
2: Gunstein-Dotir, an Icelandic consultant, filmmaker, entrepreneur, and writer. She was in Connecticut as a 2016 Yale-Greenberg World Fellow. She's also co-director of the documentary Insaie, The Sea Within. It explores the art of flourishing, leading, and innovating in an age of distraction and transformation. It's now available on Netflix. More information on our website, wmpr.org, slash, where we live. Great speaking with you, Hrund. Thank you for inviting me. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Talarski. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.